During the week, which is why I encourage many of you to, not many of you, but all of you to study your Bibles and have a devotional life, during the week, the Lord communicates in vivid color through the study of his word and through our devotional life. And so many of you might wonder, how can pastor from Sabbath to Sabbath come up with a new message? I don't know how, but the Lord does. When you study God's word from day to day and read God's word and have a devotional life, you'll find out very quickly that the Bible is a book that will never be exhausted. And its foundation gets stronger and stronger in your life as you build on the rock. Some of my sermons are designed to sneak up on you. This one is not a sneak up on you sermon. I want to make it very clear from the very beginning that the focal point of my message is encapsulated in the title, something that each one of us, in light of how God has handed down the church to us in these last days, we are, and I'll say this again during the message, we are spiritual inheritors of the only organization on this planet that will never fail. I want to say that again. Stores are closing. Businesses are shutting down. But God's church will never shut down until it is all over, until it is all done. We are going to go from the church militant to the church triumphant. And until... God is done. The church has been given the guarantee that nothing and no one on any given day with any kind of arsenal is going to be able to bring down the church of Jesus Christ because it is built on a rock. So this morning, as the Lord speaks to you, I'm going to pray that he speaks to me and that we can all receive what God has in store for us. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, we're living in the closing hours of earth's history. And whether it is your worship, whether it is your relationships, whether it is your marriage, your finances, your children, your job, your future, your plans for college or your plans for retirement, whatever it is, if it is not built on a rock, the rock Christ Jesus, it is not going to sustain. It is not going to last. It is not going to experience success. So I want to be clear at the very outset that I'm going to encourage you by walking through the beautiful history of this church and how God has so wonderfully sustained for us in these last days, from the apostles to those who endured persecution, to those champions of the dark ages, to those pioneers of the three angels' messages, 
We have been blessed to be inheritors of a church and a message that will never fail. So bow your heads with me as I ask for the Lord to lead in the construction and the communication of this message. Our gracious Father and our loving Lord, it's always humbling to stand here knowing that I'm just a a frail human being. But I'm able to stand here, Lord, because you are my foundation. And I pray this morning that you'll find the hearts that are building on wood and stone and sand and glass and money and redirect their construction project to build on the rock. May your Holy Spirit speak to each of us. And when the sermon is done, may we know that our future is secure. And if our plans are not in harmony with yours, change them for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The scripture reading is from Psalm 127 and verse 1. It's a forward-looking scripture, one that has not first been repeated by the psalmist David. And as you'll see in the message today, it is a scripture that continues to resonate from generation to generation. It's even contained in the words of Jesus before he decided to ascend and return to that spotless kingdom called heaven. And I read in your hearing, Psalm 127 and verse 1. David wrote, Unless the Lord, say it with me, builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord, together, guards the city, the watchman stays awake, in vain. I'm going to repeat this question throughout the sermon because I want your mind to be stimulated to think about how you're building, what you're building. We're living in a world of instability. And I think that that statement is far broader than we can imagine. We live in a world where nothing is really reliable. Nothing is consistent. That is the reason why whenever I open God's word and I stumble on that text, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It is so good to know that in a vacillating, changing, unreliable world, we have a savior that never changes. He is always the same. He doesn't need to change to the times. He's always ahead of the time. He doesn't need to catch up with what was on the news this week because he knows what the news is going to be before it is even broadcast. We serve a God who is not only intellectual, but intellect is not the only thing he's able to boast. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present. And there's no one that has been able to take his seat because his position has never been up for election. I want to make it clear. 
And he has a plan that if each one of us would institute this plan in our lives, we will find unmistakably that the foundation on which we build can only be secure if we put the building project and all of its plans in the hand of the Lord. If not, David made it very clear, we labor in vain if the Lord is not the one in charge of the building project. We labor in vain if the Lord is not the one guarding our homes and our hearts. And it's too late to labor in vain. So here's the question. How do we build a solid faith in a shifting sand world? How do we build a strong foundation in a world that is sand wherever we go? And I speak not of the literal aspects of sand, but we know in a world that is vacillating, nothing remains the same. The answer to that question will cause us to endure or to abandon our Christian journey. And there are many in these closing hours of earth's history that are abandoning their Christian journey because they cannot find the answer to how do I build a solid relationship with God in a shifting sand world. And while you're thinking about that, allow me to introduce to you something considered a modern miracle. This is the Burj Khalifa, the tallest building in the world. About seven years ago, my wife and I were, were graciously blessed enough. We had gone to uh, one of the countries in Asia. It wasn't Myanmar. It was uh, another country that was not too far away from Dubai. And the people that sponsored us to go there, they said, on your way back home, is there any place you'd like to visit? And I thought, well, I've never been asked that before. I said, well, where, where are we going? And they told us. And I said, well, we've never been to Dubai. They said, done. We're going to pay for you to go ahead and relax in Dubai for about five days. Come on, say amen, somebody. Help me out. <laughs> they said, we'll cover your hotel. We'll give you some spending money. Just go ahead and enjoy Dubai. Well, we stayed in a hotel that was in visible distance of this massive 163-story modern miracle. A building, the tallest building in the world, that was piercing the downtown skyline of the city of Dubai. When I began to find out about this tall building, it is more than a half a mile high. Now, half a mile on the ground may not seem like a lot, but you turn that around and stand that up. That's 2,722 feet to be exact. But it was built on the desert sands of the United Arab Emirates. Everywhere, north, south, east, and west of that building is sand. Everything in Dubai is built on sand. Everything. When I looked at the building in comparison, I had to kind of get some perspective. To the left, you see a little building there. That is the Empire State Building in New York City, which is 102 stories. The building to the left is the Burj Khalifa. That gives you some idea 
When we think that the world, that the Empire State Building is tall, I would say to you, look at the Burj Khalifa. The Empire State Building built around 1930 was at one point the tallest building in the world. We had been to that observation deck, I think on a couple of occasions. But how different it was when we stood on the observation deck, my wife and I, when we stood on the 153rd floor, 153 stories above a desert floor. That takes a lot of faith. That takes a lot of faith. When everywhere you look is sand. I came to find out more about that building. It was designed by an American architect by the name of Adrian Smith. He also designed the New World Trade Center. He designed the former Sears Tower, which is now the Willis Tower in Chicago. And he, he is also the designer of the Burj Khalifa. The Burj Khalifa presented a, tre a tremendous challenge. That is how it looks if you're looking at it from a distance. You cannot miss it. We stood in the lobby of that building and took the, took the elevator ride, which didn't take it. I think they said it's about a minute and eight seconds from the base floor to the 153rd floor. When that thing takes off, you could feel the wind as that elevator pierces the elevator shaft, just rocketing to the 153rd floor. And then you step out on a panoramic view. And the first question you ask yourself is, what am I doing up here? <laughs> it is inspiring, but it is so high, you're afraid to get too close to the window because it looks like you're already leaning forward. The Burj Khalifa. The Burj Khalifa, when I thought about how was this building built, I came to discover that the Burj Khalifa was built, as the builder talks about it, he said it was one of the greatest construction challenges that he had ever faced. For the mere fact that the floor is, the, 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 the desert floor is nothing but sand. And so they decided we have to seriously study how this building is going to build. And so they decided to build, drill 33 holes to study the integrity of the Dubai bedrock. And as I read the results, they said, the results proved that the foundation was weak to very weak. Nothing but sandstone and silt stone. To add to the challenge, studies revealed that the building site was also discovered to be in a seismically active area, said plainly, earthquake territory. Why would you build a building so tall in earthquake territory? The verdict was, for the Burj Khalifa to stand, the foundation had to be solid. The foundation had to be solid. And when you look at it from the, from the aerial view, it's a three-sided shape three sides. So what they did was they built 192 pylons of steel and concrete in each of those three sections. And they drove them 164 feet deep into the ground. The architect says the building was designed to support 500,000 tons. Now, right now you're lost because you can't even think like that. 
Nobody can think about 500,000 tons. No, no, not the weight of your car. But just think, if you had a car that was a t- a weighing a ton, buy 500,000 of those, and you'll get some idea how heavy that building is. The other challenge was the temperatures. Because during the four-year process of building, they began building in 2004. The building was officially opened in 2010. But during the building process, they had to contend with degrees, temperatures exceeding 120 degrees. And in Dubai, the temperature gets so hot that it literally would melt car tires. So they decided, how are you going to pour a foundation of liquid concrete during a 122-degree day? So they decided not to do that. So they poured the concrete at night. And to secure that the concrete would solidify before the daytime, they added ice to the mix. And when the building was done in 2010... This $1.5 billion project, it was opened up to a fireworks show of more than 10,000 fireworks outlining the building. It was termed a modern miracle because the question was answered, how do you build on shifting sand? And the answer the architects gave was, you build on a solid foundation. And so... We are inheritors, and I want that to sink in. I'm going to use the word inheritors again. The message that God has given to us, the church that we are members of, the movement that we are disciples of, did not make it through 2,000 years of persecution and hardship and pestilence and all the attacks that the enemy could surmount against it. It did not make it because it has good music or a great educational system or a good health plan. It made it this far because it is built on the solid foundation of nobody else but Jesus. And so the question is, how do you build a solid relationship in a shifting sand world centuries before? Today, we're going to walk through this wonderful gift that God has entrusted to us centuries before the advent of Christ. Moses knew. Moses knew the secret. God gave Moses the secret. Moses revealed to Israel the secret of their future success. He said in Deuteronomy Chapter 32 and verse 4, he told them about Christ. He told them about the coming deliverer. He said, he is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Moses said to Israel, if you're going to be sustained in the work that God has given to you, you've got to stand on the rock. And we know the sad story. It took a long time, but Israel failed. My brethren, why is this message important to us? Satan is watching with a keen sense of deep interest. He's watching and he's hoping to duplicate among us what he was able to accomplish among ancient Israel. He's trying to get our foundation to weaken because he's trying to get us to do what they did. 
They rejected the foundation and tried to build. And Jesus said to them as he stood inside of the temple in Jerusalem, he said, there is not one stone here that is, that is built upon the other that will not be thrown down. And he's standing right next to the building. He's standing next to this temple that endured centuries. And he's saying to them, you are building on that and you're ignoring me. My brethren today, can I say it clearly? Don't build your Seventh-day Adventist Christian foundation on just a health message. It has to be built on Christ. Don't just build it on 28 fundamental doctrines. It has to be built on Christ. Don't just build it on the idea that you are honoring the Bible Sabbath. It has to first be built on Christ. As the songwriter says, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. What else does it say? All other ground is sinking sand. David, the psalmist, called God the rock of my salvation. 700 years before the birth of the Messiah, Isaiah described the only security for the children of Israel. He wrote in Isaiah 28 and verse 16. Notice what he said. Notice what Isaiah said. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I lay in Zion a what? A stone for a foundation. What kind of stone? A tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily, or as another translation says, will not be ashamed. Today, I want to tell you, in a world that's metamorphosizing, in a church that somehow the members are leaning one side and then another day the other, I want to praise God today that we don't have to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a church. When you think about what God has given to us, when you think about how this little, small, fledgling movement rose up out of the disappointment of 1844, and today, every attempt the enemy has made to silence, to dilute, to cancel God's message, God's church is still standing strong today. When Jesus revealed the architectural plans for the construction of the church, I was reading in Desire of Ages this week, and if you've never had a chance to read that book, I want to tell you, it's a powerful book. Desire of Ages. Ellen White pointed out that when Jesus made the following statement, and I'll share with you the scripture in a moment, when he made this following statement, Jesus was standing before, how can I say it? A group of misfits. Fishermen, the dregs of society, People with issues and attitudes, having no idea what they were, gonna, were going to be confronted with. Jesus was looking at a handful of men who did not understand that what he was about to entrust to them can only succeed if they built their hopes on them. And he looked in their eyes and repeated these words. Listen to this. Matthew 16 and verse 18. Jesus said as he looked at Peter, as he looked at the disciples, he said, upon this rock, let's read this together. Upon this rock, I will what? Build my church 
and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, we've read that passage a thousand times, or maybe even more than that, but why is this instrumental to me today? Do you know that if the devil could have stopped this movement, he would have done it a long time ago? If he could have poured water on the flame of the everlasting gospel, he would have done it a long time ago. But today we stand on a foundation that is sure, a foundation that is a rock. And Jesus saying to the disciples before they even went forth on the day of Pentecost, this was made before the day of Pentecost, before he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, he looked at them, some with a fishing net, some with garments that were just in whatever condition they were in. And he said to them, I'm going to give you something. I'm going to build my church on this rock. And no matter what you face, your future is secure because I'm building it on me. When the Pharisees and the rabbis rejected Jesus and they led him to his crucifixion, they thought that by killing Jesus, that the church would come to an end. But I love the way Jesus looked at them and spoke. He said in Matthew 21, verse 42, and Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. What does that scripture mean? As Jesus was looking at the Pharisees and scribes, as they were preparing to persecute and to interrogate him, he was saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. You may think that if you get rid of me, the church is going to go away. I'm just the chief cornerstone. I'm not the whole building. Now, let me get that. Let me make that very clear to you what I'm saying. When the Lord looked at the future of the church, he says, I'm the chief cornerstone. I've done many amazing things, but I'm going to pass it off to you. And the Pharisees didn't understand that by the death of Jesus, the security of the church was guaranteed. But Jesus was not leaving the future of the church in his hands. Look at what he said. Look at what he said. In John 14 and verse 12, looking at the disciples, he said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my father. Made it very clear. When we become disciples of Christ, we are on heaven's construction crew. You might wonder, what does that mean? Heaven's construction crew. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. But we are saved that from the moment we give our lives to Christ, he calls us to keep working on the building. If I could translate that another way, if we lived in the days of Noah, our job would be to hammer on the ark, to build the rooms on the ark, to preach the sermon, getting people ready for the ark. God has called us in these last days, not just to be content to be members of a church, but to be content only when we are working to advance the kingdom of God. The building. Jesus left. And when he left, the last question that the disciples asked, will you at this time restore Jerusalem? And he said to them, it's not given to you to know, to know the times and the seasons. You've got some work to do. 
My brothers and sisters, if we want to hasten the coming of the Lord, we've got work to do. We've got work to do. Paul, the apostle, made it very clear in Ephesians 2 and verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I was reading the story about all the workers that were working on the Burj Khalifa. Millions of hours, millions of hours went into the building of that building. One of the sad stories was one of the workers on that building decided to take his life. He decided to, to jump from the 143rd floor and end his life. When his life ended, the project continued. And I thought, how can I possibly relate that in any particular to the message today. And I thought about it. When Jesus came to the earth, he came to give his life. And when he gave his life, it secured the building of the project. But the good news today is we don't serve a dead savior, we serve a risen savior. He came forth to continue in the project. And Paul the apostle made it very clear that God has told me to remind you today that we are, in, we are spiritual inheritors of a church that is sustained by God's grace for more than 2,000 years. Can the church say amen? amen? And today it may not look like it, but if you were living in the days of John the Baptist, if you were living in the days of the Apostle Paul and James and John's and John and Thomas and Bartholomew, if you were in the congregation when Paul and Barnabas preached, if you lived during the time that the church went through severe persecution under the Roman Emperor Diocletian, and you lived to see all that, and you came to this day, you would say to somebody, you have no idea what we went through to get to this point. Today, my brethren, we stand on a solid foundation 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 11 says it this way, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is what? Which is Jesus Christ. So let's now go through the hall of faith. Let us now walk through the hall of faith and find out what happened to secure the church to this point today. One of the earliest victims of Satan's anger against the church was James. James was slain with the sword. James was slain with the sword. We go back to the short life of John the Baptist. John the Baptist died in prison. Some people, somebody asked me this week, they called me and they said, why did John the Baptist have to die that way? Why couldn't Jesus have been more sensitive? And I said, John the Baptist knew that his life was to prepare the way for the Lord. I said, but instead of focusing on why did John the Baptist have to die that way, why did Jesus have to die that way? So that he can secure for us a foundation that would never be broken down, a foundation that is sure. James was slain with the sword. Every one of the disciples went through one trial or the other. Not to sustain a social gathering. Not to make sure that the next church picnic would occur. But when James was slain by the sword. 
and the other disciples and the other apostles went through their persecution, they did that with the forward looking, with the forward vision that God had given to them that when we get to the year 2021, the things that we are willing to sacrifice today would secure the continued existence of the church 2,000 years from now. And today, I am so thankful that someone was willing to stand and give his life that today we can be spiritual inheritors of a church built on the foundation of Christ Jesus. James was slain with a sword. Paul was beheaded. But if you listen to the words of the apostle Paul, knowing that, knowing that his end was in sight, Paul inscribed an unforgettable testimony so that when we begin to experience what he does in our own Christian walk, we understand that as we endure through it, there's a blessing after the storm has finally passed over eternally. The apostle Paul wrote in second Timothy chapter four, verse seven and eight, he summarized his life in a beautiful way, but he didn't just summarize his life. He said, this is my testimony to you. If you would do what I did, you would also look forward to the reward that I'm looking forward to. Notice what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Let us read this together. I want you to see how these immortal words are a testament to us today. If you do what I have done, you will stand in line to receive what I'm going to receive. Brethren, I'm looking forward one day to receive my crown. What about you? But notice what Paul said. He said, I have fought a good fight. What else have I done? I have fished the race. What else have I done? I have kept the faith. Finally, he says, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. But I like the fact that he left space for me. And not to me only but also to all who have loved his appearing. I want to ask a question today. Are you growing weary? Are you saying, Lord, why are you taking so long? Are you beginning to feel that, that this message is just not delivering what you had hoped it would deliver? Are you beginning to look other places for something that you think this church doesn't have? When I say this church, I'm not speaking about Thompsonville particularly, but the Seventh-day Adventist message. Why am I asking those questions? Because when you study the course of, of those who stood where we stood, and even in the New Testament, you find that there were those who walked with Christ who decided I want to look elsewhere for something that I don't think that I could find in Christ. And the Bible says many of them went back and walk with the Lord no more. Are you, do you feel like giving in sometimes? Do you feel like this thing called Seventh-day Adventist Christianity just doesn't work? I got an email from somebody the other day because in one of my sermons I said, people are walking away from the faith. And somebody wrote me, he says, no, they're not walking away from the faith. They're just walking away from the Seventh-day Adventist church. 
But the way it was written was as though it was something to boast about. And I thought to myself, as I get the phone calls and I get the emails and I, and I, and I, and I get the Zoom links that I speak to people on Zoom sometimes or talk to people on the phone sometimes that have that in their mind, they, they believe they've found a better way. And then they become so arrogant and recalcitrant in their position. They say, well, I know what you believe, but I don't believe that we have to keep the Sabbath. It does nothing for my salvation. So I go to church on a different day now. Oh, I don't believe that the Sunday law would ever happen. That's a figment in your imagination. So I'm looking for something else. Or the others say, we don't have enough emotion on Sabbath morning. And I, I, I was trying to figure out, how do I respond to that? And the Lord gave me a statement. How much emotion did Jesus have when he was hanging on the cross? How much emotion did the Apostle Paul have when he was willing to stand whether his stand would result in a prison sentence? How much emotion did he have then? How much emotion did John the Baptist have when he knew that he had to give his life for the ministry of Jesus to increase? Paul said to us, and I'm saying to you today, the church is going to go through battles. We're going to face challenges in our own lives. We're going to face difficult circumstances that will cause us to want to give up the fight. But don't give up the fight because when you are willing or ready or saying that I've taken too long or I've gone as far as I can, the moment you give up, as one writer said, it's often darkest before dawn. We've got to hold on. We've got to hang in there. How do you build a solid faith in a shifting stand world? You do what Paul did. You begin to fight for what Jesus fought for. Paul told his young protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 12, he says, fight the good fight of faith. How's your faith, my brother? How's your faith, my sister? How is it when Monday comes? Or when your calendar doesn't seem to have room for Christ? How is it when... Your plans are not going the way that you had hoped they would go. Are you fighting the good fight of faith? Let me make it clear to you. It will shake you. It will shape you. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. It will shape you when you fight the good fight of faith. It'll begin to contour your life. And I know because it happens to me, there are days... When I sit at my computer, I told my wife the other day, I said, you know what? Sometimes I feel like I'm going 150 miles an hour. And I'm trying to catch up with myself. And when I, when I finally catch up with myself, I realize that I have to switch vehicles and keep going forward as fast as I could. And nothing seems to be slowing down. And I ask myself the question, Lord, do not allow me to lose my faith in the spinning cycle of spiritual activity. Because you can be so spiritually, spiritually active, but still your life is going downhill. You can be like a very 
enthusiastic cook in the kitchen, feeding everybody but starving yourself. But Paul said, fight the fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life. Eternal life is slipping away from so many because they're looking in other directions, forgetting to realize that we are so much closer to the coming of Christ than at any other time. But it is when the coming of Christ loses its impact on your spiritual walk that people begin to think maybe, maybe I've given too much for so little. My brethren, hold on. Jesus is coming again. Fight for what Jesus fought for because the church, the church did not win a water balloon fight to get to this point. The church won and survived on the bloodstained battlefields of the blood of those that went before us on the blood of those that stood for truth, stood for light, stood for the, the everlasting gospel. They chose not to give up. That's why Joshua said to the Israelites when they were in the wilderness journey, he said to them, and Joshua 1 and verse 9, have I not commanded you, say it with me, my friend, be strong and of what? Good courage. How is your courage? How's your courage? We had an elder in California, similar to a Larry McLucas. Larry would always say, have a beautiful day. Or how else would you say it? Thank God for another beautiful day. And on Sabbath morning, when I would come to church, I'd say to my head elder, how's your courage? And he would always say, my courage is excellent. How's your courage? How's your courage? Because the intensity of the subtlety of the battle that we face can consume, can consume you like a slow dripping faucet. Can impact your life like a silent erosion at the foundation of your faith. It begins with a drip and then a trickle and then a stream. And before you know it, your life is going downstream and you're asking yourself the question, how did I get here? Let me make it clear, brethren, when you ignore the drip, the trickle is on its way and the stream will follow after that. Don't look at the dripping life of Bible study, the dripping away of standing strong on your faith. Don't look at that and say, it is too slight to ignore or it's too slight to pay attention to you. If you see the dripping of your life, no time for Bible study, no time for prayer, no time for your alone time with you and God. I would be very honest with you. If I didn't have that, if I didn't take advantage of that, I wouldn't make it. I wouldn't make it. I wouldn't even be standing here today. If we didn't take advantage of that, how's your courage? The Lord said, do not be afraid nor be dismayed for the Lord. Your God is with you wherever you go. And when you face those challenges that the doctors don't seem to have any answer for, 
And when your job seems to be something you're holding on to with a thread and you can't find stability in your home, And your worship doesn't seem to deliver what you're hoping it would deliver. Brethren, do not trust your faith to emotion. Trust your faith to the never changing promises of God's word. James was beheaded. Paul, James was, uh, was slain with a sword. Paul was beheaded. What about Stephen? Stephen was stoned. Stephen was stoned. Why am I mentioning these men? Because each one of them faced a hardship that the hardship, because they built on the stone, the hardships of life couldn't break their faith. Stephen was stoned, but before Stephen drew his last breath, God gave Stephen a glimpse of the prize of faithfulness. Every now and then I got to go to Revelation. I'm not going there this morning, but every now and then I got to go to Revelation and read the last part of Revelation. It's not in my text on the screen, but I'm going to just tell you what the Lord did for me this week. Every now and then I got to go to the last part of Revelation, this part of Revelation. Here it is. Revelation 22, verse 20. He says, he who testifies of these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Every now and then I got to go to that and ask myself, how is this, how is this quagmire going to end? I am coming quickly. God gave Stephen a glimpse of the prize of faithfulness. Notice what Stephen saw before he breathes his last. The endurance that we need just before that, the endurance that we need is the endurance that the Bible promises for you have need of endurance, Hebrews 10 and verse 36, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive what, friends? The promise. The promise. That's why the Lord didn't tell the disciples how long it would be before he returned. Can you imagine the Lord saying to the disciples, well, you got about 2,000 years. <laughs> My wife and I have these discussions. You know, when you start getting older, you have discussions that young folk don't have. Am I right? When you realize there's more time behind you than ahead of you, and when you start seeing those news broadcasts, such and such and such, today he died at 87. And you start saying, okay, I'm this age, and that is that, mm, am I going to make it to that age? There's something to be said about getting older. It helps you get wiser. Hopefully. It should help you get wiser. Young folk ought to be able to look at your life and say, I want to be like that individual, hanging in there, standing strong for the Lord. But I want to tell you, even older people, I'm not in that old category yet, but even those who are getting older are learning along the way that it is worth serving the Lord. God gave Stephen a glimpse of the prize of faithfulness in the midst of his final sermon. The Bible says, but he being full of the Holy Ghost, 
gazed into heaven and saw the glory of the Lord. Acts 7, verse 55 and 56. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. When he saw that, he held on. When he saw that, he held on. When Stephen saw what God was holding out for him, he held on. He saw God standing. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. What do you see in your difficult moments? What do you see on those challenging days? What do you see? What you see will determine what your next move is going to be. Stephen was saying, when the battle is raging in your heart to look up, when life is disappointing and it wants to incarcerate your faith, look up. When the diagnosis seems hopeless, look up. And when the future seems foggy and your options are few, see is saying to look up. God is saying to us today, this church today, look unto me and be saved for I am God and there is no other. Isaiah 45 and verse 22 Today, God is saying to the church, look up. What is he saying to us, friends? Look up. Don't look to friends and family and finances and job. Our eyes need to be fixed on Christ. Because when Stephen finished preaching, when Stephen saw the glimpse of God, the Bible says that Stephen fell asleep. Stephen has been sleeping for a long time. But let me tell you something. Even if my eyes close and rest before Jesus comes, I want to know that when that trumpet sounds, I'm coming forth in the first resurrection. I don't mind going to sleep, but I want to know that I'm going to sleep in the security because Stephen fell asleep and Paul the apostle says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 15, 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means perceive those who are asleep. I'm looking forward to one day to seeing my mother again. The lady who raised me. Come on, somebody, help me out. I'm looking forward to see those spiritual giants. As I spoke to Elder Brooks as he was facing the mortality of life. And Elder Cleveland, and I remember my conversations with him as he called me and as I walked into the building at Oakwood University. He says to me, come, young man, sit here by me. And I thought, Elder Cleveland, what do you have to say to me? He says, in that vernacular, in that voice that so many of us who heard him preach remember the sound of his voice. He said, young man, sit here for a moment. He says, I've been watching you. And I read your book twice. He said, God has an anointing on you. Be faithful to it. And when I went down to Oakwood Cemetery, a few months ago, my wife and I went down to Oakwood University, went down to the Oakwood Cemetery. We went down to Nashville. We said, let's go, let's go further. Let's go visit some family in Huntsville. And there we saw Elder Cleveland's grave. We saw Little Richard's grave. And we saw all the names of 
preachers who had preached to me when I was at Oakwood University, Oakwood College. And then on Elder Cleveland's grave, he says, I am an evangelist forever. I am an evangelist forever. Now I thought to myself, how could that be? How could he be an evangelist forever? And then the Lord impressed my mind. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from henceforth, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. As Elder Brooks said to me, he said, people are still being converted from sermons I preached in the 1960s. When you stand on the rock, the words of the Apostle Paul, Paul is an evangelist forever. Somebody, somebody say amen. The words of Peter, he is an evangelist forever. Because one day the Lord, as Hosea 13 verse 14 says, one day the Lord is going to ransom from the power of the grave. He says, I will redeem them from death. One day those who stood faithfully through the changing challenges of life are going to be ransomed from the grave. What a day of rejoicing that will be. James, killed by the sword. Paul, beheaded. Peter, crucified upside down. Stephen, stoned to death. But before Peter was crucified upside down, Peter left some words for us today. Peter left some words for the church in 2021. He says, when your difficulty comes, notice what he says to us in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 and 13. When difficulty comes, he said, beloved. What did he say, friends? Beloved. Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. Are you going through a fiery trial today? He said, it's not strange. I went through it. Jesus went through it. You're going to go through it as though some strange thing happened to you. And I always wondered about this part, but I understand it now. He didn't say rejoice for the trial. He said rejoice because of what I'm going to end this statement with. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with what, friends? Exceeding joy. One day we're going to have exceeding joy because the trials of this life are going to give way to a glory that will never fade. So for those that say that the church was built on Peter, if that were the case, the church would have ended when Peter died. But the church is not built on Peter. The church is built on Christ. James is sleeping. Paul is resting. Stephen is resting. But let's not forget John, the apostle. John was exiled on Patmos. And when they unsuccessfully tried to kill him by boiling him, in a pot of boiling oil, John took a towel and wiped off his oil and continues scribing the book of Revelation. <laughs> he says, enough of that. I got work to do. So what did he say to us today? Because we're going through difficult trials in our days. And the reason I know that is because in this distracted society, sometimes when I'm preaching the sermon, I could see the distraction at work. Sometimes I could see the, the distraction of the world at work. Think about it. How does it work? In this fast-paced society that we face every day, 
even though we're here in Thompsonville, West Frankfurt, Southern Illinois. We could be moving so fast during the week that when we finally pull our cars into the parking space and decide to spend an hour with Christ, it seems so strange. We still feel the inertia of all the activity of the week. And it's hard to slow it down. It's hard to absorb what Christ is saying to our hearts. But I want to remind you today of the words of that faithful apostle John from the island prison of Patmos. He says, brethren, it's not easy for me and it's not going to be easy for you. And he wrote in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, these enduring words, these words that give me courage when I look at what he gave up. But then I remember what he's going to gain. He says, brethren, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. But listen to what he said. You'll notice how at the end of all of the statements that we read so far about Paul and Stephen, we find that they, they tell us about what's going to happen, but they always end on a positive note by saying, if you hang in there, notice what he says, and you will have tribulation 10 days, but be faithful until what? Death. And I will give you what? A crown of life. And when I look at that, Christ's enemies put forth their best efforts to extinguish the church. But friends, the church is still here. Centuries of fierce persecution was turned against the church, but the church is still here. And the church is still standing today. In the Pentecostal church, I'd have to slow them down. The church is still standing today. To God be the glory. And Jesus foretold all that the apostles went through. Jesus foretold it in John 16, verse 33. He says, you're going to face difficulty. But the words that he communicated to those who are about to face difficulty are the words he's communicating to us today. John 16, 33. What does he say to us? These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have what? Peace. In the world you will have peace tribulation, but be of what friends? Good cheer. Why? I have overcome the world. My brethren, let me make it clear. This world is not all that there is. It's not all that there is. I was watching a documentary this week and then, the, and the astronomers were saying they, they were trying to figure out, you know, we, we talk about Orion, the black hole, and astronomers and scientists have said that the gravitational pull in Orion is so great that, the, that, the, that this black hole that they see in that vicinity, is the, the, the gravitational pull is so great that if anything gets within, the, the measurement is too great to even understand. Anything within the vicinity will get pulled into it and will never come out. We'll get sucked in and never come out again. They said, but we want to find out what it is about this Orion Nebula, what it is about this seemingly dark space in space that has bewildered our attention for decades. But they said, in order for us to begin to see into it, we have to have a telescope the size of Earth. 
And I naturally concluded, well, you're never going to see it. But Ricky, they did something amazing. They entered into a 15-year project. And wherever there wasn't a telescope, they invested millions to build one. And they coordinated from the South Pole to the Middle East, to Asia, to the Pacific Islands, to Alaska, to the, to the telescopes in, in Colorado, to South America, in Hawaii. They coordinated a, pro a project where they locked every one of these telescopes into the same direction so that they can all see in the same direction together, thereby creating a telescope the size of Earth. And they said, if we can do this, maybe we can, through the information gathered, draw a picture of what is so great beyond this veil of darkness. And I thought to myself, it's not a veil of darkness. It's the door through which we are going to one day enter our eternal home. The Orion, the Orion Nebula, the black hole, it's hidden now because the Lord doesn't want us to see it. But one day, and I'm, I'm yet to see the rest of the documentary, but I want to just tell you how far I am into it. I'm fascinated to see what they discover, but I want to tell you there's an easier way to discover what's beyond that. You got to have the eye of faith to realize that one day we're going to see by faith by our own eyes, what God has been planning for, for millennia that one day we will occupy. I am looking forward one day to being in my eternal home. What about you? The church is still here through everything that Satan has thrown against it. And the enemy of righteousness has left nothing. The enemy of righteousness has left nothing in his effort to stop those builders committed to the furthering of God's cause. Look at the hall of faith. Hebrews 11, verse 36 to 38, the hall of faith. The writer of Hebrews could not put names any longer. He just had to start putting the conditions. He says, still others had trials of mockings and scourgings and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and in caves of the earth. And when I read that, I said, oh, I get it now. The caves of the earth. The day is coming. The caves of the earth was the place that the righteous found refuge, but the caves of the earth it's going to be the place where the unrighteous are going to seek refuge, but the only refuge is found is being in Christ Jesus. They were hiding in caves, but the day is coming that there's going to be, there's going to be an exchange. We're going to be coming out of the caves, looking forward to meeting Jesus and others are going to be running to the caves to try to hide from Christ. The only way that we're going to make it, my brethren, is if we build on the foundation of Christ. These all died, but Paul made it clear or, or Luke made it clear that God never left himself without a witness. Acts 14, verse 17. He never left himself without a witness. God always has someone standing by. God always has someone getting ready to take the place 
of those who stood before them. And when you look down the line of the hall of faith, this church has only made it because in every generation, God has had somebody else willing to stand on the foundation that Christ has established. Revelation three and verse eight says it this way. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. And I praise the Lord today that the door to salvation is still open for everyone. For you have a little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. What does that mean? Listen to this quotation from the book Acts of the Apostles, a beautiful picture of the endurance experience by those standing on the rock. The servant of the Lord says in page 598, paragraph one in the book Acts of the Apostles, she says, history bears record to the fortitude and heroism of these men. Like the apostles, many of them fell at their post. But the building of the temple, what does it say? Went steadily forward. The workmen were slain, but the work advanced. And look at what she talks about. Look at the men she mentioned. The Waldensians, John Wycliffe, Huss and Jerome, Martin Luther and Zwingli, Kramer, Latimer, and Knox, the Huguenots, John and Charles Wesley, and a host of others brought to the foundation material that will endure throughout eternity. Now, I don't know if you got it. When we get to heaven, our names are going to be added to that statement. Elder Brooks and Mark Finley and Doug Batchelor. I'm hoping, that not, I'm hoping my name gets in there somewhere. Even if I'm just a P.S., I want to be mentioned as those who stood faithfully in the trying times of life. The Bible says in, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Today, brethren, we are pilgrims. We are strangers. This is not our final frontier. But I'm holding on. And this final quotation, a beautiful one in great controversy. The 1888 edition, page 41 in paragraph one. Listen to this beautiful picture. Songs of triumph ascended from the midst of crackling flames. That is those who went through persecution to sustain the church to get to our day. Looking upward by faith. They saw Christ and angels leaning over the battlements of heaven. Get the picture. Gazing upon them with the deepest interests and regarding their steadfastness with approval. A voice came down to them from the throne of God. Be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life. Amen, church. How do you build a solid faith in a shifting world? Very quickly, seven quick points. One, you build your faith on the concrete promises of God's word. You got to pick up God's word during the week. You got to build your faith on the concrete promises of God's word. Secondly, you have to build your life on the character of Christ's righteousness. Don't cause any human being to be your idol. 
The only one that you should idolize and admire is Jesus Christ himself. Because looking at men, somebody may disappoint you. Set your character after the life of Christ. Thirdly, build your witness by a life of kindness, compassion, and faithfulness. May it be said of you that that person is a stable individual. They're kind, they're compassion, and they are faithful. Next, build your worship on the truth of God's word. Don't build your worship on tradition or feeling or things that come and go. Build your worship on the truth of God's word. What about holding on? Build your faith and your hope on the return of Jesus. I'm holding on until Jesus comes back again. What about you? And lastly, the last two points, build your choices on the instructions of God's word. Build your instruction, build your choices on the instruction of God's word. How do you make decisions during the week? Let God's word be your guide, not the voice of those seeking to seduce you to go in the wrong direction. But finally, build your endurance on the eye of faith. Look beyond the here and now to the there and then. Picture yourself sitting at the welcome table, walking through the gates into the new Jerusalem. I don't know if you ever do that, but I do that quite a bit. Looking to the time when you can hear your name being called, coming forth to receive your robe of righteousness, your crown of glory. Come on, help me out, somebody. To the day when Jesus says, John Loma King, here's your new name. Here's your crown. Here's your robe. I'm looking forward to that day. I'm not stuck in the here and now. So how do you build a solid faith in a shifting sand world? Last text. This is how you do it. Matthew 7, verse 24 and 25. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rains descended the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall it did not fall why it did not fall for it was founded on the rock build on the rock it won't fall why does God allow the winds and the rains and the floods to challenge us so that we can know and examine our foundation from now so that we can understand what we are building on now? And if what we are building on is shifting and moving, God is giving us time to reestablish our worship, our faith, our hope, our witness, our life, our choices, and our endurance on a foundation that's built on the rock. My appeal to you today is in simply in the form of a question. Do you want to build on the rock? Is your eye of faith going beyond what you see here and now to the there and then? If you feel like giving up, don't give up. If your faith is being tested, hold on. If your worship is being tested, Reestablish it on the promises of God's word. 
If your choices are leading you in the wrong direction, move them aside and follow the instruction of God's reliable word. He is allowing the winds, the rains, and the storms to come so that we can know if our house is built on the rock. And the house that survives the elements of life will one day stand no longer on rock, but on a golden foundation, on a foundation of tried stone. And we will with our eyes behold the glory of God then, if by faith today we build on the rock. Do you want to commit yourself to build on the rock during this week? to build on the promises of God's word, to build your faith, to remain sure and steadfast. If that's your desire this morning, would you stand with me? Building on the rock. Our Heavenly Father, we are facing an intelligent world the intellect of the enemy is astir. The examination of the forces of darkness are focused on us. And they're looking to ask the question, on what have you built your faith? On what have you built your decisions, your choices? On what have you built your worship? What are you building on? And Lord, we know that if they see that our foundation is built on wood and sand and short-sighted plans, that we will not endure the days ahead of us. But I pray today, Father, that you'll guide us to look beyond the here and now to the there and then, to recognize that this great gift, the church, battered and scarred as the ship may be, it has endured the journey of many centuries, many millennia, and it will safely carry us into port if we simply build on the rock. And so today we thank you, precious Savior, for building the church on you, the foundation that will never give in to seismic activity, the foundation that will not be shaken in a changing economy, the foundation that will not be swayed by political quagmire, a foundation that will be focused on nothing but the enduring, unchanging promises of your word. But help us to examine our own foundation, our own hearts, our own homes, our own relationships, so that you will give us the wisdom and time to make the adjustments now, so that when the final rains and storms come, we will be established on the unmovable rock. And when the storm is done, we will still stand. We thank you for the promise of holding us up. If we do our part, thank you, Lord, for the promise to do your part. And we thank you in your holy and precious name. Amen.